So, I noticed in the transcript there were a lot of misters and sirs. It sounded like a very polite exchange. Oh, if you think about it, if you want to present yourself in a positive light, you would say that. And Suge Knight's no dummy. Suge Knight is no dummy. Far be it. I mean, the story that you hear about him, how he built that industry or that empire, so to speak. I mean, an idiot didn't do that. Vilified, deified. It's hard to find anyone apathetic about rapper and actor Tupac Shakur. By the time of his passing, September 13, 1996, he had sold millions of records. In death, a prolific musical artist would sell millions more. 25 years ago, it was clear to me how influential Tupac was, and I went in hard in reporting the case as a correspondent and producer on a primetime crime show. I was the first to secure the video of the now infamous beatdown at the MGM Grand, the first to get a hold of the search warrant affidavit detailing the gang warfare that erupted after Tupac was shot. Another first was securing interviews with the original Las Vegas Metro investigators. 25 years later, once again an exclusive, an interview with now-retired homicide detective Brent Becker. Nothing is off the table. Oh, and if you've heard any of Tupac's songs, you have heard some of the language lightly sprinkled throughout this podcast. Enough said. Lennon Ozizwe reporting. Tupac's murder was his case. The Investigation, Part 1, Episode 3. Detective Sergeant Kevin Manning, Detective Mike Franks, and Detective Brent Becker, the team of original investigators of Tupac Shakur's murder. Some 25 years ago, I did not realize just how rare it was for a reporter to hear directly from all of them. All I knew 25 years ago is that I made some calls and then made arrangements to fly in for an interview with Manning, Franks, and Becker. It was a first, and as far as the team is concerned, the last. As you heard in the prelude episode of this podcast, they may have been called by duty when it came to doing the interview with me, and in retrospect, I get it but they didn't show it at the time. Whatever trepidations the investigative team had about talking to me, it was not evident over the couple of days that I took to work with them and produce the story. 25 years ago, did I ask about Suge Knight's potential culpability in the case? Yes. Did I ask about the involvement of Orlando Anderson back then? Of course, yes. Did I ask about the publicized beef between the so-called East and West? Most certainly. Did I ask about allegations of racism directed toward the investigation? No, it was early in the investigation, and at that point it wasn't a thing. However, I did ask how Tupac's outspokenness about negative encounters he had with police had impacted the investigation. I sure did. Beyond my interviews with the homicide detectives in the middle of their open space office, my team, 
video photographer Tim and sound engineer Lowell and I had a lot to do in Las Vegas. Before it was all said and done, I made arrangements for us to take a personalized nighttime helicopter tour that included flying over death row CEO Suge Knight's Las Vegas mansion in hopes of getting a glimpse of his pool with the red bottom. Another destination was flying above University Medical Center, UMC, the hospital where Tupac was treated and later died. We would also capture video of the exterior of the MGM Grand, where Tupac caught that quick fight between Mike Tyson and Bruce Seldon. The hotel was also the site of the undercard, where Tupac himself was a participant in a beatdown that reverberates to this day. On that night in the helicopter, my crew and I also hovered above the exact spot where Tupac was shot in the deadly drive-by on September 7, 1996. Back on terra firma, I got a driving tour of what would turn out to be Tupac's last mile before his body was the target of a vicious drive-by shooting. At the wheel was Las Vegas Metro homicide detective Brent Becker. 25 years ago, he walked and drove me through the investigation. 25 years later in this episode, we pick up the day after the shooting, September 8th, 1996. So, Sunday, what do you do? Well, Sunday, I'm sure we're putting things together. We're developing some information. I can't... To the best of your recollection. I just don't remember specific times. I just know that as as the investigation goes on, or because and we're getting a little ahead of the autopsy, because from Saturday to the day he died, which was the following Friday, we did a lot of things in Tell between. me about them. Not to mention, not to mention, we're still up for a murder. Right. Explain no one's dead that. yet, so we're still up for the. The way it worked was we had X amount of people in the detail, the homicide section. You have X amount of sergeants who have at least two teams. You have a squad. So we had a sergeant. Kevin Manning. And two, te two teams on the squad. And Mike and I were one team. We were on call. You remained on call until you basically went out on a murder. So if it took... 45 days for there to be a murder, you were on call for 45 days and you would be getting all the suicides, accidental deaths, overdoses in between and have to investigate those too. So in this case, uh, Shakur was not dead yet. We were on call. I think we did go out on a suicide during the week somewhere, but we didn't get a homicide until the day he died. And then, then we officially went down. So we're still up for doing this while we are working this case and whatever other cases that happen. And in this particular matter, we had developed some information, especially with the bitch face description and the Cadillac that we worked on. Tell me more. So I don't know. I don't know. 
that's more of the investigative part of this whole thing, but. Would that have been Sunday or Monday? When? It would have been during the weekdays. So I don't know if it was Monday or two. I just don't remember. It would be in the report, but it was before he died. Okay, but you don't. Put it that you way. You developed information based on what you had heard from Gaddafi. Correct. We had gotten some information on a person that we thought could have been the driver of the car and the location of the car. All right. And what else? And how often were you going to the hospital? During that week, I went two or three times. I remember the first time I went, Frank Alexander was sitting out in the hallway outside his room. Keep in mind now, he uh, Shakur is in his his treat, it's not, I don't know that you would call it a recovery room because it's more or less intensive care. It's still in the trauma building because they want him close by in case something else happens or I'm pretty sure they had to do more than one surgery. So Frank was in the hallway when I got there. I talked to him briefly and I went in to check on Shakur because I don't know if he's regained consciousness or not. Because if he is, I'm going to want to talk to him. But at no time was he conscious when I got there to see him? And in fact, I don't know that he ever regained conscience. They might have left. They might have left him sedated because I know his injury was pretty severe. I've heard varying stories about whether he was able to talk or not. Did Las Vegas Metropolitan Police provide any security for Tupac at the hospital? I don't remember anybody at the door to his room. I know there were people outside the building because there was a, uh, there was continuous groups of people out there building little memorial, you know, they were just gathering, praying, whatever you want to call it. You know, they're, they're, they were there. I just remember that it was quite the production out there as far as some people called it chaotic. And I know that there was some resentment, some hard feelings that Tupac was not protected by Las Vegas Metropolitan Police in that there was a feeling that Death Row and his friends and family and the outlaws, even, you know, I heard a report of some folks driving in from Los Angeles with a trunk filled with guns in order to protect Tupac. Well, and I because there was concern. I don't know what they mean by protection. Uh, you're talking about someone sitting in a chair right next to his body because uh, that's pr- protection, not something that happens. Well, protection outside of the hospital to well, make sure. Well, now my that, understanding, and every time I went there, there were police officers outside the hospital. But was that for the you know quote chaotic crowd, or was that to protect? Well, it was for both. It was to protect him from the chaotic crowd because. It's quite evident to me that if you didn't, the chaotic crowd's going to go in and create chaos. The the chaotic crowd was not a friendly crowd. I'm sorry. There may have been good people in the crowd, but there were just as many bad people in the crowd. How did you determine that? Just by the way they were acting. I mean, I got cursed at walking in there. I mean, it's quite obvious I'm a policeman. I'm not in uniform. But there's... People what were they are, saying to they you? They were not friendly. What were they know? saying to you? Well, they're just fucking pig or whatever, you know. They're just saying shit. 
Now, I'm not saying everybody was that way. There were good people there. There were people that I'm sure were concerned about Shakur. Uh, I'm pretty sure there was family there. I think his mom was there, Malt for forever, you know. Yafu Fula, or Gaddafi, he was also there because I've seen a lot of video of him there. Was there a right. thought of talking to him again, especially as the case developed? You got to realize at that time, we didn't know Fula was there. We were developing, in fact, that's how we determined, okay, Suge Knight isn't wanting to respond to our calls. We determined, we learned about David Kenner. David Kenner, the attorney. The attorney who represented Death Row because we ended up doing a lot of things through him because that's what they wanted to do. That's how the whole thing came up with Suge Knight in his interview. Because we ended up, we interviewed him before Shakur died. And the only way right. we got him was through David Kenner. Right. And I definitely do want to get to that. Uh, but mm -hmm. in in sticking with, you never saw Gaddafi when you were there? Not at the hospital. Oh, because I, I never saw him. And not in where I was at. Now, if he was outside with all the people yes. or in a large crowd, he didn't come to me and I didn't see him. Okay. okay, I guess you could say shame on me for not walking through the crowd looking specifically for him, but he didn't come reaching out for me either. No one did. Okay, because as far as as far as wanting to give any information, other than I saw Frank Alexander in the hallway inside, inside, and we had some conversation a couple of times. And I have a feeling at some point I've heard that Frank ended up having some problems with either security for the hospital or something. They didn't want him in there. I don't, and Frank might have been the one that told me about that. But yes, no, I did see multiple images of, of Yafu, Fula, or Gaddafi outside the Were hospital. those multiple images from multiple days or from one day? I couldn't tell you. I, I should yeah. you know, have examined what he was wearing, but... Uh, I mean, I just remember looking at some videos and like, oh, that's him. Oh, oh that's him. You know, he looked very yeah. distraught. And oh, and he was. He was that night. I mean, they. I really. I know when we did the interview twenty-five years ago, I did not realize how far back that they went. I mean, he was almost just barely out of being a toddler when their well, friendship started. He described him as his brother. Whether he fit, he was, I don't Blood know. He described him as such. Yeah, no, they were they were extraordinarily close. And again, I mean, you're getting the perspective of walking into the hospital and people cursing at you and calling you names. And the other, you know, the camp of Tupac Shakur is feeling our guy is not being protected and being taken care of, and we've got to do it ourselves. And some even made a comparison to the scene in The Godfather when, you know, The Godfather's shot and Michael Corleone has to come in with the, I don't know, it was a baker or who else to, you know, keep any threat at bay. So there was that dynamic. It's kind of interesting. It's kind of interesting how they're comparing it to a movie that's not real. True that, but they, but they were just comparing. <laughs> yeah, were, I'm just, I'm just throwing concern. that out. I said you're com they're comparing it to an, a, 
a movie that's entertainment that's designed for entertainment and is not real. So I, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to say right, wrong, or indifferent. I just, you saying that just kind of piqued my interest that that's, that's how they're thinking. Right. But, but bottom line, they're saying too, that hospital insiders told them when there were other people who were in the hospital, they got a higher level of help and what support. In, what insiders told them that? I, this is the first I've heard of it. I'm just curious. What, inter, what insiders? People who worked at the hospital. Who? There were, That's what I'm asking. Who? Sources. Because sources. I, I, can, I, I could say the mayor of Las Vegas told us not to do something. Is it true? Well, let me let me ask the question this way then. Sure. Was sure. it ever the practice? Because I know when I've been in the ER with loved ones, I have seen police come in, normally with suspects rather than victims, but I've seen them back in ER. Is it mm-hmm. ever a custom for, or was it a custom when you were with Las Vegas Metropolitan, uh, the p- police department, for there to be police station to ensure the security of somebody who was the victim of an attempted murder? Was that ever the practice? No, I can't. To your knowledge. I personally, and I'm only going to speak personally, I personally have never seen that. Uh, I was a uniformed policeman for a long time, and I've been to the hospital for different things, and I was never asked, and I've as a uniformed policeman, I was at a lot of shootings, attempt murders and stuff, and I was never asked to go sit with a victim unless to guard unless them. there was a direct threat, you know, why would you do that? If there was someone somehow you had developed some information that someone was out to get them, like they show in the movies, in the TV, I'll go to the entertainment aspect of it. Because that's that's how they portray it. That there's okay, someone tried to kill them, so they didn't succeed. So they're going to go and try and do it again. But exactly, this time at the hospital. exactly. That was a and concern. That, infor- that information never came up because this was this a planned shooting. I guess you could say, in a way, it might have been because of how it played out. Was it a spontaneous shooting? It could have been in a way because of the way it played out. It just depends on how you look at it. But just because there's that possibility. Right. Wouldn't there be an impetus to just be sure? Possibly? No. No, there was no. In a perfect world, we would have police officers that were assigned just to bodyguard people at hospitals or at houses or whatever. That's in a perfect world with with an unlimited budget. True. I understand what you're saying, but yeah. this person had okay. just been shot at. And a lot of people have just been shot at in my career. A lot of people. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. But how early... And this is the only one that, ever, that I ever saw they had to have police outside the hospital. And that was because of the crowd, not to necessarily protect. It was twofold. It was twofold because of the chaos outside and to keep the chaos from going inside and causing harm or issues within the hospital. So in a sense, they were protecting the hospital and the occupant of that hospital 
But the threat was determined to be the crowd versus somebody else coming in. Uh, well, an individual threat could have been mixed in the crowd, but the point is that individual threat shouldn't have been able to just walk up into his room. Because keep in mind, the hospital, the, the trauma unit, they have locks on the doors. You have to get buzzed into certain areas, you know, like the trauma unit or the rooms where they maintain people. And his area was a secured area too. So part of it is the security procedures for the hospital. So the only way you can, I, can, I, could never, I couldn't buzz that door. I didn't have a key card or anything like that. If I were wanting to get into a back room, I would have to go to hospital staff and ask them to buzz me in. So for someone to get back there, they would have had to gone to hospital staff to get buzzed in or get a batting ram and break down the door, which I guess you could have done, but that would have drawn attention. So what you're saying is that he was secure? Uh, to me, he was secure. He was in a secured area of the hospital. He was not in a freewheeling, anybody can walk in the front door and walk in there type of deal. There was the hallway, the only people that were in that hallway the times I were there was the time Frank Alexander was sitting there because they let him sit there because he was the bodyguard for Tupac or medical staff. I'm trying to remember. There may have been a police officer there. There may have been other officers there for other cases. I don't know. And they may have, they probably would have let immediate family in. I'm sure his mother was allowed back there because he, that's the mother. And his girlfriend and yeah, friends. And guess what? Someone had, Someone had to speak up for them, which I'm sure mom had something to do with some of that. Now, just someone out there holding a candle outside, they shouldn't have been able to get buzzed in there. They had no business being in there. Now, if the hospital allowed it to happen, the hospital can do that. Because remember, it's a hospital. It's not, it's not part of the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. That belongs to the hospital. They... It's their property. Okay, not to belabor the point, but perhaps okay. belaboring the point, but wouldn't you want to make sure that he was safe because he was the victim of an attempted murder and you want to make sure that he survives to testify? So And he was safe. We just we've just gone over that, if if you want to say belaboring it. There were police officers out front of the hospital. I don't know what else you want me to say, but that's the way it worked. Okay, uh, I'm just trying you know, to speak yeah, on behalf no, no, of... No, I know. People, people get a misconception from watching TV. And again, TV and movies are entertainment. They aren't real. Remember that. Okay. That's not real life. So Unless how, it's a documentary about something. How many times told did you go to the hospital that week? It was two or three times. I... I know of two for sure. Could have been a third. I don't recall. And every time you went, you were cursed out? No. Oh, no, no, no. That was in the early stages because that's when people were really... People were pretty upset there at the beginning. Because I know Mike even said, well, Mike's the one. I think he used the term chaos. It's chaos at the hospital right now. Because people are just pretty wrapped up about this whole thing. And by Mike, you, you mean? Mike Franks. Your, your partner. My partner. Detective. Yes. Gotcha. 
Okay, so you go to the hospital two to three times that week. You develop information about this, quote, bitch face that Yafufula Qaddafi tells you about. What else? Uh, with some information we got, uh, we went and did an affidavit for what's a, called a pin register. A lot of people always, they think of the term wiretap. They hear that all the time, uh, a, a wiretap where they either bug the telephone or bug a room so they can overhear the conversations. Well, pin register wasn't quite that, didn't quite do that much. It more or less recorded, would record phone call. We'd have a phone number and we'd want to try to track who this person's calling or who's calling them or whatever. And that's P-I-N so register. Yeah, it's just a it's just a acronym like thing. We call it a pin register, and we did the paperwork. And when you do the paperwork, you get you got to get a, the court to approve it. All right, it's not you just can't just go do it. The court approved it, and we had to go turn it in because they have to record it at the county. We did our thing, and I remember the next day, because Mike and I just shook our heads, the next day it was in the newspaper. Do you remember what day that was? No, I Monday, I Tuesday, Wednesday, but it was I, the week I, before he passed that, away. It was that, yeah, it was that week, because he wasn't dead yet. I just remember that it happened. We went out, so we just went out to where we were looking at, and the place had been vacated. You also so, I can't say that that was the driver and that was the car, but it was some information that was developed that we wanted to look at real closely. That you thought was related to the driver and to the car, could, potentially. Could have, could, have, could have been, may well have been, but I don't know. Now, when do you recall that you got the video or access to the video? How did the video come in? That, because it the did come in that week. Have, yeah, the video would have come in within just a couple days because how? how? Uh, I I'd be lying if I could say for sure. I have a feeling the hotel told us security. They came to you. Yeah, I I have a feeling that that's how it happened because it was before we talked to Suge Knight, and Suge Knight was three days after the shooting, so it had to be somewhere in between. Suge Knight was there with you on the eleventh. Okay, so it probably happened. We either got it the eighth, ninth, or tenth. And I just can't. I can't say for sure which day it gotcha. was. Gotcha. But it comes in, and what are you, what are you thinking yes. when you see it? Oh, when I see it, I'm going ho ho ho. Here's here's a possible person of interest now, because when I'm watching the video, I see this black male wearing a football jersey. And then I see Tupac Shakur, almost like a blur, pounce. And then the rest of the crowd pounce in there because I know Shakur's taking swings at the dude. The dude, I think, goes down. And I see Suge Knight on the video putting shoe leather to this guy, basically kicking him. And a bunch of other people. There, there's quite a dog pile here. And I see Frank Alexander off to the side. Frank isn't 
partaking in the beatdown. In fact, it looks like he's trying to, you know, it, it's kind of obscure because I remember it was like a fake tree or something in the middle with seats around it. And part of that tree was obscuring part of the video. And I just know Frank was, I got the impression and I think it turned out he was trying to pull Shakur off of him. So what else did you think about that video? I mean, you look at it and you think, especially in light of, you had asked everyone you talked to that night, were there any problems? Were there any confrontations? And they all had told you no. So when you see that video and you know that you'd asked the questions before, what, what went in, on in your mind? Well, the first person I'm thinking of is Frank Alexander. He's the bodyguard. He's driving the car, and he he says nothing happened that night. Well, here he is on video, clearly before the shooting, and something happened, and he didn't tell me about it. Uh, as far as the other people in the crowd, I can't pick out Malcolm Greenidge, Yafu Fula, Katari Cox, or any of these girls or anything. You know, and Malcolm Greenidge says he wasn't at the fight. I don't I don't know that he was. Excuse me. 80. I got one of them. Yeah. So I see that. So right off the bat, I'm thinking, okay, well, there's at least one person not telling me the whole story. I can imagine. So, and so I'm seeing this guy in his football jersey. And, I, you know, you see the video of them beating him down. And then you eventually see... Shakur, like you say, the Pied Piper leading the crowd through the casino because the casino camera's following him. And he's walking quickly. Suge Knight's walking quickly. Uh, Frank Alexander and a bunch of other people and the crowd's growing and they work their way through the casino and out. And then eventually, there's another video after the fact of the guy in the football jersey being talked to, and you could see he's being talked to by hotel security and uniformed Las Vegas police officers. There's no, yeah, there's no sound. I can't hear anything because it's just video surveillance camera. But this is all that video I get after, you know, between the 8th and the 11th. So you got all, you got it all pretty much at the same time. Yeah, the, all the video is on one tape you know so you've got them talking to this guy we don't know what he what's being said and no one at that time apparently took his name because we don't know who he is all we know is we got a guy on tape he's wearing his football jersey and Shakur went after him and beat him down and that's a person we'd like to talk to so that whole week through the 13th, you do not know who he is. I don't As you remember. Recollect. From what I remember, the Compton Police Department. They, I know I later remember. they came, but I'm just wondering. Yeah, I think was that was, that I think that was after he died. I'm not, I don't remember specifically. Gotcha. It would be, it would be in a report. I think it was after he died, but we learned who he was when they showed up. Okay, because at that point, would you have been able to, and did you think of putting his photo in a six pack? Oh, we had his photo 
right. on the videotape. Correct. I did not have a mug photo or booking photo or anything like that. But you that could have taken a freeze frame. You could have taken a freeze frame. Yeah, you could you could take something off of there. Uh, I don't remember. Again, if I saw the photo lineup, I would be able to tell you where the picture came from. All because right. I know eventually, eventually we put together several photo lineups. Okay. And that person's photo was in one of those. Okay. So I just don't remember where we got the picture. Gotcha. So um, as far as you maybe know, no six pack that week. Now, because we wouldn't have known who he was until his name, Compton, Compton right, his, Police. His but his name, his name but you would have turns his... out it was Orlando Anderson. I know we had names of some other people we were looking for that we had developed. And, uh, but I don't think there was anything pressing. We were, we were too busy trying to get to talk to Suge Knight and Yafu Fula again. Those are your two big focuses. Your, your focus yeah, that, right, right off the bat, Yafu Fula, just because he thought he could identify someone and that could have been the driver, and then Suge Knight. And to get a hold of Yafu Fula, we were directed to go. And I wasn't the one that was actually doing the reaching out. I think Sergeant Manning was, because we were doing this part, because Kevin would get involved with stuff and different aspects of it. And I want to say he was the one reaching out to David Kenner. I can't swear to it, but we were reaching out to David Kenner. We kept seeing, hearing, yeah, 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 we will. But eventually on the 11th, we did get to hook up with Suge Knight. Tell me about that. In terms of <laughs> so, set the table for it. Okay, well, we're making all these attempts to get a hold of him. Mike had no luck talking to him the morning of the shooting or the, that night, whatever. Uh, I had to go through David Kenner, and we arranged for them to come to our office. The it's attorney. the same building you came, you came to. And Suge Knight came there with David Kenner, the death row attorney, David Chesnoff, a Las Vegas criminal attorney, who apparently had some interest in this, and George Kalisis, who was the attorney for the nightclub is the way I understood it. First club 662. In relation to Suge Knight and Death Row. They were all somehow intertwined. So I know that we went in, we sat down with all these people. And can I stop uh, I you think, for a moment? Sure, sure. Who was, so that's uh, those three attorneys and Suge from Las Vegas Metropolitan Police. There was you, there was your partner, Mike Franks, mm -hmm. and there and was... I think, and Kevin Manning, I think, was there, too. Detective Sergeant Kevin Manning. Right. Who was... who? You were asking the questions, correct? I was asking most of them. I, if I remember right, when you look at interviews, the transcription of a taped interview, you might see a cue. That'll be the question. That would have been correct. me. If you see a cue with a number, like a Q2... That would be another person asking the questions. And you probably saw some of that on there. I, because I'm, I'm sure I wasn't the only one asking questions. I probably asked most of the questions, but they were on there. And, and why, keep in mind, 
David Kenner was recording this also. Correct. And that's on the tape as well. And yeah. what, what, what were your thoughts about that? Well, one, I've never had a, quote, victim slash witness come in with three attorneys before in my life. So that was un- that was very unusual. And then to have him want to tape record it, I'm thinking, yeah, this is just way out in left field here. There's, I don't want to say I thought, well, maybe this guy had something to do with it, but it definitely raised your eyebrows a little bit. Why is this guy who's supposedly been shot is a victim and a sitting in the same car as the dude got to come in with three attorneys. I mean, I'll half buy into David Kenner since he was the death row attorney. But now we've got David Chesnuff, who I know who he was. He's a high profile defense, criminal defense attorney in Las Vegas. So I'm thinking, well, so he's here. And it could be because, you know, attorneys are licensed in the state they're from normally. And they can piggyback onto other attorneys in other states. So David Kenner's piggybacking on David Chesnoff? Might have been. He might have been piggybacking in on David Chesnoff. I don't know. But David Chesnoff was there. And then George Kalisas, I only knew the name briefly because I learned ties to the club and all. Otherwise, I didn't really know much about him. Well, I met two of the three, Kenner yeah. and Chesnoff, in the course of my reporting. So in terms of the time, it was in the late, early evening. Was that coordinated by, what was, why, why that time? It was like 6.30 to I, 7. Roughly. I think that was the time they said they could be there. Because that's... We had regular work hours, so to speak, and I think four o'clock was our time, so we were staying after, so they didn't want to come to talk to us during the day. They wanted to do it in the evening. Now, I don't know if that's because they had a flight to get into town or they were driving. I have no idea. You'd have to ask Kenner and Suge Knight that question. But the time was also unusual. Yeah, the time it was. Day. I mean, it's it's later than normal. You, you know, normally... We would try to get people to talk to us during the irregular hours. I mean, if they can't, we, we, I've gone to people late at night to talk to people. But in this particular case, you would think they'd be clamoring to come give us a wealth of information as far as what happened. Then. But they, they weren't jumping at it. Like I said, he got shot the 7th, and that was the 11th that he showed up. Another factor that we haven't specifically talked about relating to his reluctance or what his mood might have been is that he had guns drawn on him as well at the scene of the you know the, the scene of where he he drove the car off to not the scene of the shooting and his he was bleeding might he have you know, been concerned about how he was going to be treated by Popo. Well, he he could have, but guess what? Frank Alexander, Malcolm Greenidge, Katari Cox, and Yafu Fulu were pro- apparently treated the same way. And they all talked that night. 
Suge Knight would not talk to the police that night. Now, does that mean Suge Knight is better than them? Because he's the CEO. Right. Because he's the CEO of death row. Well, excuse me. If it's obviously it wasn't too important for him to talk about his top entertainer, his best buddies shooting. It wasn't that important to him to talk to anybody that night about it. So I noticed in the transcript, there were a lot of misters and sirs. It sounded like a very polite exchange. Oh, if you think about it, if you want to present yourself in a positive light, you would say that. Now, and Suge Knight's no dummy. Suge Knight is no dummy. Far be it. I mean, the story that you hear about him, how he built that industry or that empire, so to speak. I mean, an idiot didn't do that. I mean, he's got some smarts. He may get go off now and then from from some information, but he, he's no dummy. And he's got his attorney there. If, Three. If you if you don't think his attorney coached him, I mean, that's just the way it works. <laughs> Speaking of which, let's talk about what he said to you that night. And I would say, having interviewed Suge Knight in person mm -hmm. at the L.A. County Jail, he's a very smart man. And I would actually use the word shrewd as well. He is no dummy. Correct. So in terms of you doing the actual interview, he told you that they had walked from the Luxor, or walked from the MGM over to the Luxor. He did say that there was a commotion. That's the word he used at the MGM Grand. He said there was some shove, pushing and shoving. That's, I think those were the words he used, because I believe I asked him specifically, did something happen anywhere, any kind of incident, threat, or anything like that? But I think he proceeded to push it and shoving with, well, it's Tupac Shakur. That he basically, if I remember right, kind of indicated oh, that's a norm. It's Tupac Shakur. There's going to be people, especially when you got a lot of people pushing and shoving. I didn't gather it as this was a beatdown because he never indicated that in any way, shape, or form. Even though you had seen, as they would say, the film. I mean, you'd seen well, the yeah, surveillance I, video. I saw the film because I think in that interview with him, I might have brought up a guy in a football jersey. So, well, the only way I know about the football jersey is from watching the video. So, I, you know. You also asked him rather pointedly about any business conflicts. Correct. How did and you know I, to do well, that? How did you know to ask about that? Well, and obviously when this thing happened, the rumor mill started immediately. The, this East Coast, West Coast rap feud between Shakur and the notorious B.I.G. or Biggie, whatever you want to call him. Christopher Wallace, I think was his real name. Uh, that came out, oh boy, real quick, you know, 
And you got that from newspapers. You got that from your sources. You got that. How did you determine that? It's it's rumor mill. I mean, I'm sure the uh, media jumped on some things because this is a big story to them. And there was obviously some conflict between Shakur and Biggie at some point in the past. I think there were some events that I later learned that occur. And I think I learned later on that supposedly Shakur had a fling with Biggie's wife. I mean, that was a, that was a scuttlebutt on there. So those things came up. So there was that part. And I had heard, I don't remember Frank told me, you know, there's a story about Shakur was wanting to leave death row. Right. And that was, that's where I was going with part of that too. On the 11th. Yeah. Oh yeah. So you already knew. There was, there was, there was scuttlebutt. Things were, the phones were going crazy. You got to realize the, the strange phone calls started almost immediately. Because I, there's, you know, this was before flash drives or CDs. We had floppy disks back then. (laughs) So I had multiple floppy disks, and I had one floppy disk solely dedicated to anonymous calls and stories and whatever. I when was you, documenting all that. When you say crazy, give me give me a few examples again in that time period. Oh, from the day of the shooting till talking to Suge? To the 13th. I'm no. not... Calls that you got oh, till his death. You, you said that there was the rumor mill going. You were getting all these crazy calls. Because right. I'm asking you, how did you know to ask these questions about East Coast, West Coast? You said that it was the media well, and also crazy calls. So what were the crazy those, calls? Those were crazy calls and that people were saying that that was part of the reason behind the shooting. Even more crazy calls started after he died. And those, some of them got personal, some got really bizarre. But those happened after he passed away. Okay, I want to limit it to our, you know, our time, our, our timeline. week period, right. So you were so hearing about... We, we, we were hearing about that scuttlebutt. Uh, I know we'd heard something about the shooting. I think he got shot in New York City once. Correct. At a recording studio in Manhattan. or something like Yeah. That, so, there was that story. So stopping you there, that's okay. the week, you know, the week from the time he was shot to the time he passed away. So did you dig deeper into that shooting? I don't recall what we did. I don't know if we talked to a detective. We did some research on some of the background on it. Because, you know, there was a lot of stuff written on that, too. Right. Did you think it was significant to the case, though? Because here's a case of him being shot. Here's another case that of him happened, being shot. When did that happen? It seems to me there was a pretty big window between... I don't remember what the window 90, was between those two. Maybe. I'll, 94, maybe. Yeah. I want to say there was a year or two gap in there. And see, part of the deal that comes out on this, and it's more into the investigation, is that, you know, time does come into play here. Because if you're going to want someone killed, you don't usually drag it out 
for years and years and years. You Having someone killed is something you want done and you're going to do it. That and how much money you're willing to throw out for it. And I think that's something that comes out in the investigation. So you didn't think they were necessarily... Sorry, you didn't think they were no, necessarily I don't, related. I don't, I don't think it was necessarily that critical at the time. I says, yeah, people would probably say it was. I think it's showing that it probably wasn't, though, after the fact. Got you. So Suge said that he did not recall seeing someone in a jersey at the MGM Grand. No, he didn't recall seeing anybody in the jersey at the MGM Grand, which we know isn't true. So now we've got two people that are at least not telling us everything. Uh, he does talk about the pushing and shoving. Now, if that's what he was alluding to, I guess that's his way of doing it. And I have a question for you, actually. You said he did a lot of sirs and stuff. Did he call you ma'am a lot at the jail? You know, actually, he told me that I looked like a puppy dog. Okay, so he wasn't calling you ma'am like he was calling me sir. So it's not a normal routine for him, is it? Um, not having spent more time <laughs> with him, uh, I don't I realize he was in jail. I realize the L.A. County Jail isn't really a place that people like to be pleasant about. But the fact is, if he is going to be, if his norm was to be pleasant like that, I think he would have been doing that with you too. So. That well, should tell a tale. That should tell a tale, too, in my mind, anyhow. He said he couldn't recall what he was wearing. Oh, the night of the shooting? Well, I, I'm not going to hold that to him either. I can just tell you that the night of the shooting, you know, he talked about going to the Luxor, about going to the house, and then coming back. Now, he said he didn't recall changing his clothes at the Luxor or at his home. And my understanding yeah. was that's why they went to his home. Yeah, and I think because uh, Shakur was changing his clothes at the Luxor because he had a room there. I don't know if Suge had a room at the... Well, he may have because they do a block of rooms, but he also had the house. And it didn't something come up about his parents being Correct. in town or something like Correct. that? Correct. Yeah. But apparently in the statement he also said he had accommodations at the luxor if he if they were renting yeah. out a whole floor i mean i'm sure he'd say oh yeah i from what i understood they did a whole block up there now uh he said he was not sure that he knew what type of car the shooter was in no he was he was vaguer than anybody else i think if i remember right you know he he was more focused on how Tupac Shakur was responding. I got the impression. He's trying to climb into the back seat. He's grabbed, uh, Suge Knight's grabbing him and all this. He's talking about being wounded, I believe, you know. Uh, he also talked about trying to protect Tupac to put his, you know, he was saying he put his body. his body over him, which Suge Knight's a big guy. I mean, if you put him over it, so... If he did, he did it well after the fact because as big as he is, if he'd have done it before all the gunfire finished, he'd have been hit. But other than whatever happened to his forehead area or his head area, because out of 14 shots, 13 to 14 shots, he gets 
grazed by one and Shakur gets hit by three. And then the rest go into the car or wherever. As you know, there's a lot of theories about this. I was just reading a series of people saying that Suge intentionally, the way he was positioned, was for Tupac to get most of the bullets. Yeah, I've heard, you know, there's all kinds of people saying Suge Knight ordered the hit on him. And my uh, negative to that is, would you really sit three, two to three feet next to the guy that you're going to want to get shot? And Tupac was a little guy. Suge Knight's a big guy. Unless you've got some guy that you know is an expert marksman, is going to put everything within a silver dollar, I'm not going to put myself next to him. I said, uh, and maybe he wanted him dead. I don't know, but I just can't buy into <laughs> having that kind of confidence in someone pulling up next to me, having three to four feet between cars and then whatever with that and and do that. But yeah, I've I've heard the stories. Uh, that's not how he portrays it. That's for sure. And. You know, that's just my thought on it. What was your thought uh, at the end of the interview? What did you take away? I took away that he he gave what he wanted to give away. I don't think he'd have thrown out or agreed to the names of the guys in the car with Frank Alexander if I wouldn't have thrown them out. I mean, it was obvious from the beginning. He didn't know. But now that I'm throwing the names out, well, he knows that I know, so why not? Uh, I think the only time that he consulted with David Kenner, I'm trying to remember. His address? Was, was about the address, yeah, which I thought, well, that's dumb because John Q. Citizen can go on the computer and find that. <laughs> you know? If you're worried about confidential stuff, that's not the confidential stuff you need to be worried about because that's easy to get. It doesn't cost you any money to do it. So, so um, anything else you can remember about that interlude, which lasted approximately thirty-five minutes? Yeah, I don't. I don't think there was a whole lot in. I think Mike asked some. I don't know if it was Mike or Kevin Manning. Someone asked some other questions. Uh, but he, he didn't give any major news out of his interview. There, there was nothing that really came out of it. I mean, what came out of it to me was him being polite and showing up with three attorneys. That just, that just baffled me, three attorneys. And that was from the very get-go. I thought, this is going to... I did. I said it. I said, this is going to be interesting. Interesting meaning? A victim showing up with three three attorneys. I says, if he doesn't give any major revelation, I'm not going to be surprised because you don't show up with three attorneys to advise you. And that's what attorneys are there for. They're there to advise you on what you can and can't say. And it's kind of ironic Again, from what I remember, 
it's only the addresses where he had to get advice from his attorney. So, did he already know what he needed to say? And the attorney already told him what he needed to say? And, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm not the fly on the wall when they had their conversation, but you can pretty well bet they had a conversation before they walked in our doors as far as what to do. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Perfection, would you use that to describe your investigation? Absolutely not. I wouldn't describe that in any investigation. And any detective or police officer that would say that on any of their cases is one fooling themselves and probably lying to everybody else. I mean, how can you say anything's perfect? You're dealing with events that aren't perfect. Uh, could other things have been done? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. You know, but the point is, there's no way I would say that we did everything perfectly. And I defy anybody to tell me that they did things perfectly in their investigations, whatever they might be. Because I can bet you if we wanted to play that game, I could look at it and start picking it apart. But to what end? You know, you do the best you can with the best, in, with the information you have. Sometimes things fall into place easier than others, and sometimes they don't. How would you identify your flaws in the investigation? I think our flaws are where most of the players that seem to be in this case are from another state, which makes things difficult. Uh, when it's in your home turf, it's a whole lot easier to go work things because now you got to do a lot of traveling. You may depend on other people or agencies. And I can tell you in this particular case, we couldn't depend on everybody we were dealing with. Because? Be law enforcement. Because I don't know if they had another agenda in mind or what, but, you know, we learned as things went on that you had high-ranking LAPD officials bad-mouthing us about whatever. Uh, you had other agencies saying things about, you know, giving us all this alleged information that we should have been able to arrest and convict someone on. And I can tell you that all the information that was given was hearsay. We never got any direct uh, information from an eyewitness as to what happened from another agency. We got a whole lot of hearsay, which a lot of the hearsay was the same thing we were getting at our end. Uh, in fact, if you, if you want to get into this information be, being so crystal clear, uh, coming from other than informants that were unknown and that as far as I know, we're not eyewitnesses or present when the shooting occurred. All right. Hypothetically, if Orlando Anderson is the man, and I'm going to throw this out this way because there's no other way to do it. 
I recall right, back in, like when the search warrants went on, it seems to me Orlando Anderson was being looked at for something pretty serious. I don't remember if it was murder, firearms charges, or whatever. He was arrested for for murder on the day the search warrant was served on October 2nd. Okay, so how much jail time did he... I don't know. He obviously didn't serve a lot because uh, he was out pretty quick from what I gathered. So My understanding he, is two days later. Okay, he was so out. he never went to trial on this silver platter information. And I don't know when the murder was, but if that murder was before September 7th, 1996, wouldn't it have been nice that he'd have been in custody? Because if you're looking at Orlando Anderson as the guy who did the killing and he was in jail, well, then I guess September 7th, 1996 would have never happened because you wouldn't have had the beatdown at the MGM, which obviously involved Orlando Anderson. And if, in fact, Orlando Anderson is the shooter, then he wouldn't have been on Fl at Flamingo and Cobol shooting out of a car, shooting or uh, Tupac Shakur. So that's just, I'm just throwing out all this stuff that everybody else seems to be trashing us about. I says, like I've said before, don't throw stones in the glass house. But would you like to throw a few stones? No, I'm I'm not going to say any names. Like I said, I've told you before, I'm not real big on doing names. I may do an organization, just but you know, people can figure out from there if they want to put a name to it. It's just I don't I don't understand the uh, name calling or criticism that I, I'm starting to hear now. Twenty-five years after the murder of Tupac Shakur, no arrests have been made. If you have any questions you'd like to ask retired Las Vegas Metro Detective Brent Becker about Tupac's murder, you have a few ways to reach out. Use the hashtag Tupac Murder Podcast on Twitter or Instagram, or go to my website, TupacMurderPodcast.com. You can type out your question, record audio or video, and send it in, and we'll get to as many of your questions as possible. But then again, you may have answers to what actually happened 25 years ago. Send me a private message via TupacMurder underscore podcast on Instagram or Twitter, or just go directly to TupacMurderPodcast.com. I'm Lena Nozizwe reporting Tupac's Murder Was His Case was created, produced, written, and hosted by Lena Nozizwe. That's me. I also created the artwork and music. Jen Nathan Orris is the sound producer and audio consultant. Lowell T.C. Woundla is the creative consultant emeritus. Special thanks to Joe Mayer, Annabelle Vidrio. You've been listening to Lennon Ozizue reporting Tupac's murder was his case. Be sure to subscribe and tell your friends to do the same. For extra content, go to TupacMurderPodcast.com. Coming up next on Tupac's murder was his case.
she claimed to be the aunt. Again, there's no way I can confirm that, but she basically told me that me and Mike Franks, my partner, were the ones that murdered Tupac. Don't have any idea where it came from. She just, her feeling was we killed him. So I thought, well, another, there's an unhappy family member. And was it an earnest statement or was she saying you killed him because you hadn't solved the case or did she really no. think you went and killed him? No, this was an earnest statement. You've been listening to Lennon Azizwe reporting. Tupac's murder was his case, an Azizwe T original. All rights reserved.